Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 109. I'm Steve Kwan. I'm Matt Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. Today, joined by a very special guest, someone that I haven't seen in a very long time, and I've wanted to have you on the show forever, Professor Emily Kwok, a former Vancouverite, but now I believe residing in the States on the East Coast, training with Marcelo Garcia. Emily, how are you doing? I'm doing very good. How are you guys? Very good. As good as you can be. I mean, I'm kind of locked at home right now, but I I feel like I'm kind of in Groundhog Day, but at least now I've got this routine going. And, you know, the one thing that we found with the podcast is that we originally recorded in person. And so when the lockdown happened, we had to figure out how to record remote and it was a pain. Ah. But now I think we've got this down to a good routine. And the benefit is it's allowed us to more easily dial in guests like yourself. So it's great to finally talk to you. I mean, I remember my first time hearing about you was the, of course, the Stefan Kesting DVD, How to Defeat a Bigger, Stronger Opponent. And like a lot of people, I loved that instructional. It was totally transformational for me. And I remember a while ago, it was, man, I guess it was a few years ago now, you came back home to Vancouver to do a seminar and both Matt and I were there. And I remember you talking about the donkey kick, uh, which is basically (laughs) like, hey, look, if you're trying to pass someone, especially from like headquarters, do like a big backwards donkey kick to clear the leg. And I'd always been afraid to do that because I was afraid of like falling on my face. But when you showed it, it all just suddenly clicked. And now, like since then, I've been donkey kicking fools left and right. Like <laughs> I will donkey kick from everywhere. I donkey kick from passes where it doesn't even make sense to donkey kick. It's completely changed my game. So highly endorsed that DVD instructional and highly endorsed donkey kicking. <laughs> Thanks for coming on the podcast, Emily. I remember that seminar. I remember you went in depth in the knee cut pass and I learned a lot. I think I was a purple belt at the time, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think you were a purple belt too. I remember, I think a mutual friend, Roy Duquette, he's a very good friend of mine, had said so many great things about you. So when you showed up, I was like, oh, this guy's supposed to be excellent. I'm so like freaked out and flattered that he wants to learn from me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not that excellent. (laughs) <laughs> well, come on, you're tearing it up from little old Vancouver. You know, I, I think that whenever sometimes I get into these chats about where is the most ideal place to learn so that you can be best in class? And, you know, do you want to be in a major city like LA or San Diego or New York, where there's going to be high level people and big teams and a whole crew, a stable of high level athletes that are going to be able to push each other? Like, do you want to go through that churn? Or like, what do we have to say about these random monsters that come up from like little cities or towns or places that 
aren't really known to have an incredibly huge or popular jujitsu scene. And like, you see it all the time, you know, with these people that come out of the UFC and in this case in Vancouver, like Vancouver is not a tiny city, but what's interesting about Vancouver is you've had jujitsu there for a long time and really tough jujitsu people. Like when I think back to who I trained with, you know how they always do the, um, if you were to take a photograph of everyone that you started jujitsu with, how many of those people actually make it to Hmm. black belt or 10 Hmm. years later, how many of them are still training? And if I look back to a lot of the people that I started jujitsu with, it's kind of crazy and uncanny how many of them are still practicing today, own their own schools or, you know, went on to fight professionally Vancouver has a really tough scene for not being like an epicenter of jujitsu, you know, like, and maybe mm-hmm. that's changing. There's definitely more high quality jujitsu going that way. But I mean, I know that your name is dropped in so many ways, Matt, and people are so proud of the fact that you're doing so well. I think everybody's rooting for the fact that you've been learning and, and pushing and always like driving at that edge of what greatness can be. So congratulations, man. Wow. I'm super flattered to, to hear that. When I first started the scene seemed quite a bit smaller in terms of the competitors and the tournaments and even the schools in the area. But now, you know, I'm a black belt and, and, uh, the scene has actually exploded. There's tons of new schools. There's some higher level guys coming here, specifically Ben Dyson and Stuart Cooper. Of course, there is a number of high level instructors in the city. And I think that there was a ton of momentum going on before 2020 hit. Mm. And now, now we're sort of kind of in a weird limbo state, just like uh, most places are in North America. But yeah, the city has grown a lot in jujitsu. And um, those are some really nice compliments, Emily. Thank you. Yeah, one of the things about Vancouver that really stands out for me, I mean, we don't have that kind of like Silicon Valley hotspot of jujitsu like some places do in the States. I mean, you know, you can go to like Cali or New York or Florida, and you will find places where it's just like jujitsu nirvana. Vancouver's never really been thought of that way, but what Vancouver does have is some absolutely incredible instruction and also an absolutely incredible community. Mm. People, when they talk about Vancouver, the thing that I think stands out a lot, and this reflects in the culture of content like what we make, like what Stefan Kesting makes, also from Vancouver, like what Rob Bernacki makes, who's also from our, you know, our province, mm-hmm. where it's very collaborative. There's not a lot of secrets. You know, people are cross-training all of the time. And so as a result, even though you don't have that, like, you know, 20-time world champ, actually, I guess we do have a multi-time world champion because we have you. <laughs> but but yeah. even if we don't have a lot of those, like, you know, really, 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 like, A-list jiu-jitsu celebrities, competitors from Vancouver, we do have a very vibrant scene and a lot of incredible instruction. So I think Vancouver is quickly becoming a kind of a travel destination for people who are on uh, like a jiu-jitsu world globetrotting journey. We actually, in our last episode, we talked to Nelson Puentes, one of the co-founders of Inverted Gear. And he was talking about how, you know, his, his dream is to come up to Vancouver. And we've had a lot of people who have kind of got that on their bucket list. So it's awesome for us. We get a lot of great visitors when that happens, right? A good seminar track because we get a lot of really, really awesome people passing through the city. Yeah. Nelson's a really good friend of mine, actually. I think I wore his very first gi way back when he started. And uh, I know him and Hillary and their tribe have traveled all over. But in the history of me doing camps and seminars and things, I've had a lot of my base go like, when are you going to plan something in Canada? And I was like, well, yeah, I guess we could, you know. (laughs) I think I'm always concerned because 
you have the American and Canadian exchange rates and where would we go and where's the right place for it. But, you know, look, Vancouver pops up on so many lists for just extremely high quality of uh, life and standard of living. And I think it's definitely heading in that direction where where people want to get out there and explore. And I'm sure after this pandemic, you know, lifts when the shroud lifts off of us, there's going to be a, a lot of revenge travel. So I suspect tw- the latter <laughs> half of 2021, 2022, there's going to be a lot of camps everywhere. <laughs> it's funny. I, I was talking to someone recently and I was saying like, I fully expect that we're entering the roaring twenties, much like <laughs> in 1920 after world war one. And after the, the 1918 flu pandemic, yeah. you know, it was just like a decade of like nonstop party. I fully expect that yeah. this decade is going to be exactly the same. I just hope that it is not followed by a 2030 great depression <laughs> like oh, we had a hundred years ago. But other than that, I think that, you know, it's, History is a rubber band, right? When things are are really, really dark, sometimes you can only hope that it's going to be followed by a a much, much brighter period, right? So I'm hoping that we're at the bottom of an up ramp and things are going to get pretty awesome over the next few years. I hope. Yeah, I am hopeful too. I'm I'm a little uncertain of everything, so I don't want to throw any uh, eggs in that basket, but I'm hopeful. (laughs) I'm hoping that's where the eggs will roll. I think it's good to just have like a like a wait and see attitude right now. Like I'm not, mm. I'm not really worried that I'm slightly injured with my knee because I know there's no competitions coming up and it's, you can rest your mind in certain ways as a competitor because there's not really anything to train for right now. So I think now is just a time to sort of self-reflect and sort of examine your own game. I've been doing a lot of studying lately and trying to learn as much as I can from from a lot of different instructionals. And I think as long as you're thinking about jujitsu every day, you can you can come back stronger than when you left. I did want to uh, backtrack a little bit because we were talking about Vancouver and, you know, Vancouver is obviously an awesome place to just visit. Like you said, the quality of life and the cultures and everything here is really, really great. I remember when I was Purple Belt coming up, I would have guys coming up to me and looking up to me as a local competitor and sort of saying, hey, I really want to make competition in my life like should I stay here should I go to LA and I'm like if you want to be the best in the world I think you have to kind of be that that small fish in a big pond and you have to go to you know you have to visit some of the marquee gyms in California or or in New York and really immerse yourself in those environments because just staying in a place like Vancouver I mean there are some really good instructors and competitors here but it's nowhere near as diverse or as dense as a place like LA or uh, San Diego. And so it's always sort of been my goal to just raise the level of jujitsu in Vancouver, as opposed Mm. to, you know, making, making world championships and ADCC championships, my overall goal, because it's just, it's unrealistic, especially a lot of the time when I was coming up through purple belt and brown belt, I had the instruction from Rob, but a lot of it was self-taught and I was sort of like blazing my own trail and just trying to study and, and be as good as I possibly could be. Because I know that, Steve, our generation is kind of the link between the old generation and the new generation. And so we play a pivotal role in the jiu-jitsu scene in Vancouver right now. You know, d- depending on how our generation passes on jiu-jitsu to the next generation, you know, within 10 years, we could see Vancouver as a one of the marquee jiu-jitsu destinations in the Pacific Northwest. And I think I think we're kind of on that path. But for the last few years, my my mindset has always been, you know, how do I start a gym? How do I make my mark and sort of pass on this style of jujitsu to other people? 
that is a step up from like the old, old school styles. You know, now we're involving like inversions and leg locks and all these, all these things that we didn't really see 20 years ago. And uh, how can we, how can we make Vancouver as good as we possibly can for the next generation of grapplers? Well, that's a really, really great transition, actually, because Emily, this kind of ties into your journey, right? You were from here and now you train out of the U.S. with Marcelo Garcia, right? I believe is, is that correct? You're still with him, right? Yeah. So, well, so this is an interesting layer of the conversation because of the pandemic. So I, I've had my own school for 10 years. I have my own school in Princeton, New Jersey. So I have 250 students there. And then when I'm competitive and for the first, well, I should say 10 years ago when I started training with Marcelo, I was already a black belt, but I worked and trained at Marcelo's for I don't know, two and a half, three years. I was there every day, training multiple times a day, five, six days a week. And I had the opportunity to touch greatness, you know, whether it was with Marcelo or any of the uh, amazing visitors that we'd have passing through or the athletes that would come train. And after I stopped working at Marcelo's, it would just be my base. And I went through a phase for the last, you know, six, seven years where I actually decided to procreate and I had three children. So training was not always the top of my list, but New York's a little bit under an hour from where I live. So it was a very easy trip for me to go in. So I would drive in and, and train, you know, a few times a week and then be at my school. 2018, I decided after six years of not competing to jump back into competition. So I, in 2012, I had sort of stopped competing at the adult level and I decided that I was going to transition and have children and, and start a family and do other things in life outside of jujitsu. So I did that. And then in 2018, after observing my students do well at a competitive level in like masters and whatnot, I kind of thought, huh, I come out each year to Las Vegas to coach everybody and I come have a good time and see all meet up with old friends. And maybe I'd like to consider pushing myself again. And you know, Matt, you probably understand the feeling of if I'm going to compete and I want to win my class, I'm going to have to put everything I have into this. And so, mm -hmm. I mean, competition, taking that path is a very selfish path, not selfish in a negative way, but selfish as in it can be, <laughs> it can be, it can certainly turn into that. But if that's going to be where you're going to allocate all of your resources, you know, the world has to spin around your axis, right? Like you, you got to make sure that everything is tuned up the right way. You're sleeping, you're eating, you're training, and it's all about you, which is a very hard thing to do when you have dependents, when you have a family. Exactly. Yeah. And so luckily I had a, I have a husband who was fully uh, prepared to take on more of the familial load so that I could dedicate more time towards training and to resting and doing all the things that I would need to do. And and I decided to jump back into the competitive arena. So during that time, I trained at Marcello's. Um, another good friend of mine is Kurt Pellegrino, formerly of the UFC. He has a school out on the Jersey Shore. So I trained with him and some of his guys. And, you know, training was different this time around because I think when you're on your way up and you're under the tutelage of someone, you often go by the guidance or the framework that they set about for you. And when you are a black belt or you're kind of established or in your case, Matt, where maybe you're one of the few people that's sort of on the bleeding edge of competition and setting the scene, maybe add a little bit more liberty to start piecing your own framework together. And like, what do I need to get better? So, you know, when I moved to the United States, it was a different stage in my life. And I, I went to Emily Carr. I don't know if you guys know, I, I was trained in fine arts 
And I initially moved to the East Coast to be an artist, not to like have a jujitsu school. <laughs> I, you know, jujitsu was not really the the main intent at that time. But I will say that having having made the United States my base and having the exposure to high level jujitsu, when you touch that level of greatness and when you see where jujitsu can be taken, far beyond where I've taken it, you know, like Marcelo's dedicated his life to jujitsu since he was a teenager, and it's all he does. I started jujitsu when I was 20, 21, and it's not all I do. But when you get to tap into that level of greatness and you get to travel as I have and have the great fortune of doing seminars and camps around the country, around the world, it really does give you so much perspective on where your level of understanding is at and how much more your jujitsu can evolve. And then if you decide that you want to have a school what kind of culture you will create and where that should sit in the strata of, of jujitsu. And so having those doors open for me and having the access has certainly been wonderful. But of course, it takes a person to walk through those doors. So much to what you're saying, Matt, like if that curiosity exists, you know, I'm just glad that I was at a place in my life where I could walk through those doors and, and see what was on the other side and then decide for myself what I wanted to do with it. Well, that's a really, really great segue into what I wanted to pick your brain about, and that is the topic of peak performance and how to achieve it. You know, you brought up very presciently that you don't want to just wander into competition, right? There are sacrifices that you have to make if you want to succeed at the highest levels. And in some ways, it is a very, very lone wolf, semi-selfish activity. Uh, Travis Stevens was on the podcast, and he mentioned basically the same thing, that you know, when people come to him and they say they want to be an Olympian, his first responsibility is making sure that they truly understand what that means mm. and what they have to sacrifice to achieve that level. And as someone who has succeeded at the highest levels, I mean, you're a multi-time world champion, and also someone who has studied extensively and worked extensively with some of the just absolute legends of the sport, like Marcelo Garcia and Josh Waitskin and others. This is the area that I'd really like your advice on. Basically, peak performance. How how does that work? What is it? How do you achieve it? I think it's something that is super beneficial and, and not just to athletes. Like This is something that kind of was outside of my radar for a long time because I'm not a pro athlete, but I'm really feeling now like that was a missed opportunity for me because I suspect that a lot of these methods are just as applicable to the world of business um, or really any venture that you're passionate about just as applicable as they would be if you're a sports competitor. Yeah. I mean, I think just in your intro there, you touch on a lot of really interesting points and, you know, peak performance in the way that I have understood it and come to it. I started working at Marcelo Garcia's in 2010. And at the time, I had come out of working for a couple other jujitsu organizations. And I don't know that I was necessarily that interested in continuing to work for a school. But when I started training at Marcelo's, I was introduced to Josh very quickly. And I, I didn't know who he was. I just knew that a lot of people were like, oh, you're going to Marcelo Garcia's. That's where the chess guy is. And I was like, who's the chess guy? And they're like, Josh Waitskin. <laughs> so, so one day I met Josh and it wasn't until afterwards that I connected that, oh, that was Josh, the chess guy that everyone talks about. But he and I developed a friendship uh, training wise. And that year we were going to Mundials because at the time he was a brown belt and he was looking to make an impression in jujitsu. At the time he had already, you know, had a very established career in chess 
had transitioned from chess into push hands Tai Chi. So he became a national and a world champion in push hands Tai Chi. And then he had moved his interest on to jujitsu. So he was actively competing and training and he wanted to become a world champion in jujitsu. What's interesting about that is, you know, some people might say, how could someone be so good in so many different unrelated disciplines, right? Especially the transition from chess to Tai Chi, because one is extremely mental. You could sort of think about that. And then the, the flip side is Tai Chi is much more physical. And maybe there's more of a connection between Tai Chi and Jiu Jitsu, but they're two completely separate art forms. And so much of it boils down to the fact that he really dug deep into principled learning. And I know you guys have read, and maybe a lot of your listeners have also read The Art of Learning, but that's where he really starts digging into this idea of different ways that we look at our learning process and that if we understand these methods well, we can take those frameworks and apply them to almost anything that we do. And so much of my work with him, let's see, 20, 2010 to 2013, I worked a lot with MG in Action. I was product managing and marketing that website when it first came out. And then I had had my first child, Saya, and I was thinking about going back to the corporate world. I wanted a little bit more of a challenge. And Josh said, you know, don't do that. Like, if you would consider coming to work for me personally, come work for me. And so I've been with him since 2013. And you could say it's sort of been the grand apprenticeship, if you will, because I've been able to sit really closely with him and observe and learn how he learns. And, and that's essentially a big part of what we do. And that's a big part of peak performance is that we're always learning how to get better. There is no place in which we can say we are the best. And um, I think, you know, to what you're saying, martial arts, business, your personal life, for me, peak performance is about understanding my madness in the best way possible so that I know how to kick it on, how to kick it off, what's going to get me hyped up, um, knowing how I will perform under stress, knowing how I will do when there's nothing going on. But it's really a deep dive into what makes you tick. What is your funk? And studying all the different ways in which we can explore that. That's, to me, what peak performance is. And as we get better at building awareness over all of these different dimensions to the self, it's like the best mixing board ever, right? Because you could go into any situation and you know exactly which way to dial things and it just happens. That's how you make music. So, so that to me is how peak performance is framed in my mind and, and sort of the work that we do. Mm, very cool. A lot, lot of stuff to talk about there. I mean, The Art of Learning is an awesome book. I'm a huge fan of that book and the way that Josh Waitzkin talks about learning. And it's definitely influenced me as an instructor and as a martial artist. It reminds me of the that classic story when Hodger Gracie opened his gym in the UK and how he, you know he didn't have a lot of high level competitors or students around him to push him, you know, to to these great heights that he that he reached. And a lot of instructors have said that once they opened their school, that is when they really excelled. And it's kind of a funny thing because you would think, you know, like a guy like JT Torres who opens up his own school, relatively new school, and then goes and wins ADCC, right? When he he leaves a team like Atos, which is just wall-to-wall world champions and notable grapplers, it's just a sea of high-level black belts 
pretty pretty obvious it's the gi destination of the world right now to go train there and he goes across the country and opens up his own school and then wins ADCC, right? Like these guys, in terms of reaching peak performance and leaving a team or leaving an area that is super high level or just not even being in an area that is known for its jujitsu, say like Vancouver, I think a lot of the time you can become inspired to do your best and to put your to put your best effort forward. And a lot of the time, you know, that can be beneficial in surprising ways. When I think about like peak performance, especially in a time of like COVID, or I can liken that to a time of when I'm, let's say, injured or on the shelf, I think it's really important to just always be thinking about jujitsu and always think, well, if I can't, if I can't be on the mats putting in, you know, 10 rounds tonight, or if I can't be training hard, what are the other ways that I can improve physically, mentally, strategically? What are the routes that I can take to actually get better? I think an inexperienced grappler would take something like an injury or let's say a lockdown when we can't train the conventional way. You know, it's a depressing time. Mentally, it kind of fucks with you a little bit and you feel like what are, you know, we're kind of losing purpose here. We're losing sight of the improvement that we're, you know, like Steve mentioned, that flow state, haven't been in that flow state for a long time. And so we kind of forget about how we can improve if we're not putting in hours on the mats every week. And very commonly, you'll hear Danaher talk about how when athletes go through injuries, as long as they're mentally still in the game and they are paying attention to jujitsu, or even if you just show up to class and, and watch, or let's say it's a lockdown, you can't show up to class. If you're studying instructionals, you're going to find that mentally and strategically, you can, you can really make huge gains. And just because your body doesn't have the ability to, to exert that pressure and get those rounds in you can still really improve a lot. And that's kind of what I'm experiencing right now over the last few years, experiencing some knee injuries. And that's, you know, there are times when I can't train for weeks at a time. And so I have to look for other ways to improve. And you can always, you know, just because your knee is damaged does not mean you cannot improve physically. There's lots of exercises and and things that I neglect because I'm always training and always rolling and putting my body through all this stress. So I'm finding, well, now I have a moment to fill that time up with other things. I can, like I said, I can study, I can do physio, I can work on making my body stronger. I can think about how am I going to make my next move as a business owner and, and things like that. So there's always doors that open as long as you're receptive to it. And uh, there's definitely more than one way to reach your peak performance I think, aside from just always putting in those hours on the mat and always being surrounded by the best people in the world. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you've said. And some things that come to mind from hearing what you had to say was this idea of, you know, we all go through phases of stress and recovery. And sometimes, as we're all experiencing now, the stress is not something that we can always control, you know? Life in many ways and peak performance is always about managing the problem or is it a matter of balancing and managing a polarity? So like for every moment that we have stress, we know that there's going to be a period of recovery. So what does that look like? You know, whether we're physically training intervals and we we learn how to stretch ourselves that way, we might not be able to go to the gym and train rapid rounds with 20 different partners, 
but you could certainly go do sprints in your backyard and start training the idea of pushing yourself and holding yourself back and like settling in, pushing yourself mm -hmm. and holding yourself and settling back in. So there's things like this, there's dynamics like that that are at play, but sort of the greater umbrella for me here thematically is also this idea of internal versus external orientation or how we lead the self. I think at a entry level, you have a lot of competitors or students that will go to a gym and they, maybe rightly so, need the direction and need the, the professor or the senior student's framework to know how they should orient themselves and train themselves, right? Most of us, before we know how to embody and internalize techniques for ourselves, we imitate others. Mm -hmm. We imitate others because it's the most accessible template we have. And in doing so, you know, like let's say... You take a white belt who knows nothing versus a blue belt who might have a few tricks up their sleeves. The blue belt might evolve and begin to modify the movements that they know so that at purple belt, their butterfly sweep doesn't look the same way that their instructor taught it to them because they started to internalize the movement on their own. And, you know, we're social creatures as humans. So we learn to rely on the people or the structures around us to figure out how we should behave. But peak performance is really about more of a self-authoring mindset. And when you begin to recognize the frameworks and the structures around you, and you know what they're for. So like, they're like tools. My teacher is a tool. My training partners are my tools. But I understand my process. And I understand what I need to do to get to the next level. Your teacher might read you as, hey, you need to have an excellent spider guard before you get to the next level. But you as a student might be at a place where you're like, yeah, no, I, I actually understand spider guard, but I don't use it because I, I really feel like the, the barambolo really resonates with me. And this is the direction that I want to take my jujitsu. And so I think a lot of the times inside school cultures, we have this battle of do I behave in a more externally oriented way? Like, do I want to take in what everybody else has to say that I need to do? And in that case, you could also say, if I'm going to be a world champion, I need to have A++ other world champions to train with. Otherwise, I won't have the quality of training I need to be the best. I rely on these other mechanisms to make me better. Or do you internalize it and say, I opened up my own school and I'm a black belt going into a heavy black belt division. I only have blue belt training partners because I only have white belts and blue belts as students, but I know what I do best. I know what I need to train. Let me use each of these students as a tool to get me better and to sharpen my knife so that I can go in there and murder people in my division, right? And that's the process that you see somebody like Marcelo take. You know, like when Marcelo was peaking, he was running his own school in Florida and he only had white belts and blue belts to train with. And it's a very common complaint I hear amongst competitors. They go, there's no one to push me. I can't train with a bunch of purple belts. Like I really, I need people that are on my level. No, you don't. If you understand yourself well, and if you understand your own process and you've dug into it, then you can use anybody, you know? And if you have the opportune time to train with a hungry room once or twice in your training camp, then go all out, but prepare yourself for every moment with everything around you. And I think that that's something that we neglect to see is how much we're led by the things around us. And we think that those things are going to make us better versus we empower ourselves to know which parts of those things that we need at what times. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's a really, really awesome explanation. I mean, I, 
I know that it's attractive to think that, hey, if you want to be the best in the world, you've got to go to Mecca. You know, you've got to train with the best and the best. And certainly that will help you, right? I mean, if you move and go and train with John Danaher full time and you're just in a room of total killers, I'm sure that's going to be beneficial but it's not a requirement, right? There's a lot of awesome people who don't have that environment and still succeed at the highest levels. And a lot of it comes down to how they utilize the room. And this is something we've talked about on the podcast before, right? You can train your training partners so that, hey, maybe they're not black belts. Maybe they're brown belts, purple belts, even blue belts. But if you give them the tools, they can become black belts at giving you a hard roll or at making yes. you work, right? I mean, if this is an example that I give a lot, if I'm rolling with like a white belt or a blue belt and I hit them with like a triangle three times exactly over and over again, right? It, it just, it kills them every single time. They have no defense. I've got two options. I can just keep doing that and demoralize them and learn nothing and maybe boost my ego a bit, but really gain nothing out of it. Or I can stop the roll and say, here's what I'm doing. I am giving you the tool to stop me from doing this. And if you do that enough, I mean, yeah, maybe this this blue belt, this white belt is not going to be like, you know, a world champion or they're not going to be an elite grappler at all levels, but they are good enough now in the areas to make you work. Like if you can train someone to shut down your A game, then suddenly you really have to work, right? They don't have to know yeah. everything perfectly, but if they know how to stop your A game, now they're giving me a really, really hard roll. Even if the belt around their waist is actually not that colorful, right? They can still really, really challenge you. It's also great for the person who's more junior, right? Because they, they don't get that frustrating experience of just having some black belt wizard whoop their ass for like 15 minutes nonstop. It's always helpful if you stop them and you give them the tools so that they can actually hang and make jujitsu fun for themselves as well. So we on the podcast, we talk about that as raising the level in the room, right? Always making sure that you curate your training partners and you evolve your training partners so that not only do they get better, but so that they can also bring out the best in yourself as well. And that kind of just like lifts the entire level in the room and makes everyone better across the board. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, what do you do when you're Hodger Gracie or your Buchacha or your Marcelo Garcia and you have 600 students in your school, but you can whoop everybody's butt? What's your excuse then? <laughs> you know, like, how do you continue to get better? And the reality is, like, when you're on that edge of always raising the level, whether it's in the competitive scene or it's in your own school, it's because you know what drives your own process and you can help bring that out in other people. So when you get better, they get better. When they get better, you get better. Feedback, I think, is super important. And I think that feedback is something that a lot of times we're afraid of. I will certainly admit that I'm always afraid of looking at my own footage or you know, hearing and feeling what people think I should and could do better. Because sometimes feedback is, you know, knowing that you're not doing it all right, or you need to actually work harder. And a lot of times I notice when we train, we train without coming back to look at our own feedback. We rely on the feedback that comes in around us, but we're not visually or mentally engaging with what we need to see ourselves at times, you know, and I, and I think that when you introduce that capacity and certainly technology is helping with that. You know, like you can start to record and look at your footage much more easily than you could have 10 years ago, but it's not up to everybody else 
to make you better. Like the work has to be done yourself. So whether that's looking at your own tape and making your own criticisms, whether that's picking yourself up every morning and getting to the gym, whether it's eating better, sleeping better, whatever it may take, it's not anybody else's cause, purpose, or reason to do better than your own. And you should be in charge of acknowledging and understanding your own feedback loops so you can keep track of what you need to get better. Because the last thing you should be doing is blaming everybody else or finding an excuse for why you're not able to optimize your own process. Mm, I think nowadays it's all too common in all walks of life for people to blame others or to they're quick to have excuses as to why things aren't going their way. You know, I've been there stuck in a job where things are not going the way that I want, even though I feel highly competent in the job. That can be part of the problem too, is is sometimes you're you're in a job and you feel that you're overcompetent and you're not getting recognized for the hard work that you're putting in. And so it's easy to start blaming people for for reasons why you're not getting to where you want to go. And and really, I mean, if you take the idea of extreme ownership and apply that, you take control of your life and you realize, okay, my destiny lies within my own abilities, not anyone else. In terms of what we were discussing a second ago about how do you reach that level if you're a Bouchesha or, you know, if you are the best in the room and you consistently whoop everyone in the room. Like I always watch, I always watch Mendez brothers and I'm like, how does it feel for half a Mendez? Like there's nowhere he can go where people kick his ass unless they're way bigger than him. He's everywhere he trains. He's probably kicking everyone's ass. Like how does this guy get so good? And he's always just winning. A lot of people are now discussing different training mindsets. I hear it a lot from the Danaher guys, but a lot of people think like this. And that's the idea of me and Steve have talked about before the idea of training to win versus training to learn and how if you're always training to win, that can, you know, hinder your growth because you're going to stick to your A game. And so you're only sticking to a certain game that it doesn't allow for growth. You're more, you're more interested in winning as opposed to trying new things and, and making other things in the gym work. And if you're going with your training partner, you're always rolling with that training partner. You know, you both kick the crap out of each other and you're only offering your best game and they're only offering their best game. That is good in terms of, I guess, stress that you're going to go through and it's going to be high intensity. But at the same time, you're not really meeting new problems. You're not offering new solutions. And uh, this can be a, an issue when it comes to growth. And I think that it's really important to put yourself into bad positions. You know, we hear that a lot. And I think Gary Tonin is one of the guys who really talks about putting himself deep into submissions and seeing if he can get out. Because as grapplers, we train to prevent ourselves from getting caught in submissions. We train ourselves to prevent our opponent from getting the top lock or the arm bar or, or get to the saddle. You know, we're always taught prevention is better than, than cure, which is true. However, if we only do that, if that's our only training methodology, then we lose the ability to have late stage defenses. So you could be awesome at preventing your opponent from putting you in a top lock and getting an armbar on you. But if you do get caught in an armbar, which eventually happens to everyone almost, if you do get caught in an armbar and you, you've never really repped out those late stage defenses, then you're not going to have answers when you're so deep into the sequence. And so I think it's really important, you know, 
to think about how you can train in this manner. And it really requires you to put your ego aside, but to allow your opponent to isolate one of your limbs or to fully take your back and to get there to get a choke working and, and you have to work your way out of that position, I think it's one of the most valuable things that you can do defensively because it really will build your confidence as a grappler to implement your own game plan in a high stress situation. Yeah, I mean, I jujitsu is my tangible physical medium for for experimenting with all parts of the self, right? My conscious self. Sometimes I need to train something up and I need to be willing to go there. And so in my mind, I can think it through 20 different ways, but jujitsu gives me the medium to actually visibly with my body feel what's going on and to train that maybe abstract notion of what I need to learn. And being receptive and being vulnerable with your partners and with the people around you, that's such a tool. And it's something that we have to employ sometimes and pull out of our toolbox and manage. And, you know, we jump into jujitsu and we think, oh, I don't know what's going on. I just have to figure out what's going on. And then I've got to win because this is a fight and I want to win. But I'm sure that anyone that you talk to at a very high level will tell you they learned way more from losing than from winning. I think back to the moments where I've won. And for the first seven years of my jujitsu competitive career from like white to purple belt, I rarely lost. The scene was obviously not as developed as it is now, but I fought a lot of people, a lot of women, wherever I could find them, and I didn't lose a lot. And though that sounds kind of nice, it kind of sucked because when I got to a brown belt, black belt level, and at that time, when I won Mundials in 2007, I won the brown black division. They weren't separated. We didn't have our own division. It was a brown black division, and uh, I believe there were only two or three weight classes. But when I won that division, I was a brown belt fighting against black belts. That same year, I also fought against Hanette Stack in the Nogi Worlds, and I lost by some points. And I distinctly remember feeling like, wow, there's the moment where you know that you kind of messed up, like you could go back and fix your technique, and maybe you just didn't have your best day. Or there's the moment where you can fight somebody and feel completely outclassed. And when you're constantly winning, it feels good in that moment. But in the long run, you're not really preparing yourself to handle the moments when people deliver something that you can't explain and, and that you can't work out in that second. And so I think when we open ourselves up to having a beginner's mind, when we don't know everything, when we can be playful or when we can say, I need to be in a really bad position so that I can figure out what I don't know. It's really just about developing and testing your awareness in all of these different scenarios. I don't think we do enough of that because jujitsu is, you know, it's a sport that pulls the ego out. And I don't know that I agree with the statement that we all say, which is leave your ego at the door. I really think that so much of jujitsu is about training and managing your ego. Because you have to have an ego to fight. You have to have an ego to want to win. Especially yeah, um, competing, you need an ego. <laughs> yes, you absolutely need it. And that's not to say that we indulge in the ego all the time. Like something that I really learned when I went back to compete in 2018 was I had spent many years being a student. And actually, Marcelo said this to me when I first started training with him in 2010, that when you give up too much as a teacher or you're training with people that are at a lower level than you, 
you should never just give them everything. And what that means is, you know, I would train with people and train defensively, or I wouldn't attack. And he was like, you always have to keep something for yourself. Otherwise, the students will take everything from you and you won't be able to gain anything from that, you know. And I've always been conscious of not wanting to get too hard on students or smash people, because especially in my position being a female and being smaller than most of the guys that I'd have to train with, it's not really fun being on the receiving end of being smashed all the time. But years pass, I become better at what I do. And when I was going to go compete, I, I wrote an email to Josh and I said, listen, every time I train, I walk away from training asking myself, what's something that I did really well? What's something that I could improve so that I can just constantly work on bettering my game? And I said, although this is really good for training most of the time, I'm questioning whether this is a good mindset for me training to win. Like I want to go compete and be convincing. And what do you have to say about that? Like what kind of mentality should I have when I'm training for a competition that means a lot to me? And he said, you need to train the warrior. Flexing that, learning to flex that muscle, learning to flex the ego and learning to flex how to fight in those moments is important. It's a tool, right? It's just like anything else that we do. It's building awareness over when we should flex that muscle. And he said, you will not lose your humility by training the warrior. And, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it just, for me, was another wedge, another sort of dimension of awareness that I was building to all these unique parts of myself that I needed to be able to engage and tap into when I needed them. But if they weren't appropriate for that moment and that time, putting them on the shelf. So I think to much of what you're saying with what Donaher's guys and like what Gary might've said, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Like we can't be all things at all times. There's gotta be, again, that theme of like stress and recovery. Like there's gonna be moments where we're gonna be on with some things and there's gonna be moments where we have to be off. And, you know, for me, getting to be the best version of myself is coloring that picture in. You know, how many colors do I have in my performance state when do I want to pull these things out? And when do I want to have them sit back? I think that's when we really get into the details. Every person should invest in understanding their own levels and their own performance and, and knowing how to pull those parts of themselves out. And I don't think we spend a lot of time doing that. You know, we stumble upon these moments, or in this case, maybe people get some awareness from certain types of resources and materials. But, you know, there's, there's so much complexity to the self and we just walk around thinking that the self is the self in the moment, but we can develop so much more perspective if, if we take the time to, to dig in. Mm. The discussion you said about a second ago about the leaving the ego at the door and how that's kind of like, you know, you walk into a lot of Brazilian jiu-jitsu schools and it says that, I mean, even, even at my school, I have that written on a sign here. And it reminds me of, I'm going to butcher this, Wittgenstein's Ladder. When we had Robert Deagle on the show before, he discussed Wittgenstein's Ladder and essentially used as a learning tool where we can almost teach in a way that is not 100% true or correct, but it's taught in a certain way that allows people to achieve a particular level. And then once they achieve that level, they can then essentially start breaking the rules. I don't know if I'm putting, Steve, can you help me out there? Is that a correct way to paraphrase that? 
I'm far from an expert on it. In fact, we should probably get Deagle back on to talk about it because I know he's super keen to. But it, basically what he was talking about, it, it kind of ties into like we've talked about on the show, this concept of incremental learning where you can't throw all of the info like a day one white belt and expect mm-hmm. them to absorb it, right? And this is true of any walk of life, right? If you want to teach someone math, you know, you don't take like a six-year-old and on the first day of grade one, start teaching them calculus and be like, here's where we're going with this. You have to give people training wheels so that they can get right. to the next steps. And there is an incremental process of learning. And a big part of being a good instructor is knowing when your student is ready for the next lesson and not just like throwing so much info at them that their brain shuts down. Right. And what I was going to say with that idea of Wittgenstein's ladder, you know, we used the example before of classic example, leave your ego at the door. I'm going to, I'm going to talk about that in a sec, but like you're on someone's back, never cross your ankles, right? Never turn your back to your opponent. Like these little rules that we have in jujitsu that we teach to beginners and they're not rules that can never be broken. You know, once you once you reach a certain level, you can 100% cross your ankles on the back. You know, you can expose your back for a second to prevent getting your guard passed. Like there is situations where these these rules that we teach to beginners do get broken. And leaving your ego at the door, I think is a great example. And you brought light to that, Emily, because you're saying, it's not necessarily a good thing to leave your ego at the door. It's more of an important thing to learn how to manage your ego, because especially if you're going to be a competitor, you can't leave your ego at the door. If you left your ego at the door every time in training, then you wouldn't really train with that killer mindset, that competitive mindset. So there is a time definitely to leave your ego at the door. And I think we teach that to beginners because we don't want brand new people coming in off the street going 100% and potentially injuring people or themselves and they don't know what they're doing. So we teach them, you know, leave your ego at the door. It's okay to get submitted and all this stuff. But then you're also going to have students who are maybe five, 10 years experience, maybe, you know, purple, brown, black belt. And these guys want to win tournaments. And you can't tell that guy to leave his ego at the door or, or, or that woman to leave the ego at the door. It's just not, it's not good advice in certain settings. So we teach people to leave their ego at the door so that I guess we're using Wittgenstein's ladder. And I, and Robert Deagle is probably going to kick the piss out of me later when I say this. He's probably going to be like, dude, you fucked that up. That was not what it is. But uh, we teach that to them so that they know, okay, I have to be calm so that I can learn how to survive and be technical with purpose. And then as they progress, as they learn to be calm and controlled and survive and take care of their training partners, then it's okay to now sort of stoke that ego a little bit when we're training for competitions, you know, there's a time and place to train to learn and there's a time and place to train to win. And they both have their place. And if you're a competitor, you have to, you cannot just leave your ego at the door. That is, that is a rule that can be broken for sure. Yeah. So through my work with Josh, I, I work with this incredible executive coach, David Zeitler, and, and he follows and enlightened me with the work of Robert Keegan, who's a developmental psychologist out of Harvard. So there's different stages of development to the adult mind which I won't get too into because it's fascinating, but it's a slightly different discussion. But, you know, in order for us to evolve through certain stages, like, and to process information and to internalize information, there is the stage of us like learning and transcending what's being taught to us. To some degree, sometimes there is a moment where we start to reject what's taught to us, or we start to doubt and we test what's been taught to us. And then we reintegrate it into what we know. 
right? And like, that's kind of how we build our skill set. And we know when certain rules are meant to be broken. And, you know, the other thing that I wanted to mention too, was development also occurs in a way where if you are challenged too much, right? We've all seen the scenario. We've probably been there ourselves of being a white belt or going into a school and visiting and you jump into class and the class goes over your head and then you just become everybody's grappling dummy and you get tossed out the window, right? You have no idea what's going on and you're just like, maybe this isn't for me. So in that scenario, you were challenged way too hard. There's maybe other schools or scenarios where you may have been in a room, you learned something, but it was, you know, you kind of might've known some of it or it was so easy that it was too much of a cakewalk. So then you go, well, maybe this wasn't right for me either because I need something slightly more. Most of our development and our growth happens when we are supported and challenged equally. So the challenge is big enough that we feel like it's a stretch, but then we have some support or reinforcement on the back end to make us feel like what we're doing is okay, like it's not too over our heads. When the challenge is equal, to us and we actually feel like we can totally engage in that moment and it's the right kind of challenge for us, that's when we strike a sense of flow, right? Because we can give ourselves up to that moment. And so I think a lot of the times when we're learning, we should be mindful of these types of frameworks, right? Like how much support do I have? How much challenge do I have? Where is my edge of growth? And making sure that we have the awareness to grow the right way versus give in too much to one end of the spectrum or the other. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up. I mean, I've always wondered in jujitsu if we're integrating people into the art in the wrong way, because what most gyms do is, you know, new person shows up on the mat and then they just like get integrated into the class and they get smashed and then they kind of have an epiphany about jujitsu and realize, holy moly, this stuff works, right? But that approach is not going to work well for everybody. And I think that Probably the reason why we have a lot of attrition for new white belts is because it's a very intimidating experience. And now, yes, you can argue very well that, you know, you want to develop a warrior's mindset. And if you're not tough, you shouldn't be on the mats. And I guess that's true to some extent, but you also have to develop that toughness, right? You have to kind of climb the ladder slowly. And I think a better approach might be to onboard people a bit more gently rather than just haze them and just, you know, kick their ass on the first day. I mean, there's a lot of people who would benefit from jujitsu tremendously, who fall outside of the, you know, the stereotypical demographic. Yeah. If you're like a 20 something, you know, male who has an athletic background and you come into jujitsu, you might not be particularly intimidated, but what about like a what about a 50-year-old soccer mom who's never done something like this before, right? What about someone who is really, really out of shape and they've worked up the courage to try something very new for the first time? If you just wreck them on the first day, you're not really helping them build that mindset up to where it, it needs to go. And I'd be curious to know from... From your standpoint, Emily, what do you think about the onboarding process for jujitsu? Like, do you think when someone comes in, like you've either got the right mindset or you don't? Or do you think that we can, over time, take people who normally would not see themselves as like, you know, competitive grapplers and kind of guide them to that point? I'm curious to know how you feel about the way that we tend to onboard people into this martial art. Yeah, so I mean, like, look, I probably won't win fans by saying this, but you know, like, you can either make tough guys tougher or tough people tougher, or you can take somebody who's not 
typically tough and teach them something new, right? And, and make them tougher or show them, show them they could be something that they thought that they weren't. Some people might see this as like watering the system down because to some degree you're gentrifying and you're saying, we have a system or we have a way that we can let everybody be introduced to this awesome art. But, you know, if you think historically of the people that brought jujitsu into our world, you know, like whether it started in Brazil and then you, you migrated over to North America and, and around the world, most of the people that own schools and teach jujitsus and have jujitsu dynasties under them, the vast majority of those people were athletes first, educators by default. <laughs> Education and, and leadership was probably not their main focus. I mean, I think the life cycle tends to go, you become a multiple time world champion or you become a leader or a figurehead in your sport because you're good at doing it. And so the way that you monetize what you're good at is you open up a school. But if you think about it, if you're really good at being an athlete, you've spent a lot of time just being really good at being with yourself and understanding your own process and understanding what you need to get to the next level. You probably didn't spend that much time being empathetic to the people around you who want to be like you. You're just like, you're either running in my pack or you're not. So I don't think we've had that much time, really. Like jujitsu is still very new in North America. Like I, I think that we still have many generations to go before we get to a place where we work the kinks out. We, as leaders, I think, and school owners, we should try to develop more awareness about coaching and teaching and leadership and how to do this without corrupting, you know, our, ourselves and our system, because it's really needed if we want the sport to grow in the right way. We've all been in school where there's sort of a cult of personality. It still exists. I wish it didn't, but it does. We've been in the school where it should be this way or no way. I recall my early days of jujitsu. I've been in plenty of schools where I thought I couldn't tough it out, you know, like the warm ups were an hour long and I wasn't sure that the warm up exercises had anything to do with the technique. But then when I got into the rolling, I had no idea what to do because nobody had spent the time to teach me. And the methodology in that school was much more of, you know, the toughest will survive and you'll figure it out. The early days of jujitsu. People didn't want to teach you anything. They wanted to go learn something for themselves and grow a base of students so that they could test what they knew against you and feed you to the wolves. That's certainly changed over the years. So, you know, like, I think we have a lot of work to do on the front of helping people find themselves within jujitsu. And a lot of that has to do with meeting people where they are. And I think empowering them to feel like this is something they can do. And I think that that happens with how we teach jujitsu. We don't show somebody a flying guillotine on their first day and then throw them into a room of 20 people and ask them to survive five minute rolls for 30 minutes. That's stupid. You have the rare wolf that will come in who really wants to compete and is really secure and totally on fire and they can handle that. But most people, and I'll even take it to an extreme of saying like, like a female, like take a, take a 115 pound female who wants to try to learn jujitsu because they think that it'll be really good for them to, you know, develop self-confidence and have better presence. That individual is probably not well suited to survive that scenario where, you know, 
They're going to learn a very complex movement that has a lot of moving parts. And then they're going to go into a room and have to survive against 20 people that have been doing this for one to five years and, and know way more than them and will not take mercy on the fact that they know nothing. I don't think that's a kind way to gain more students and grow the sport. But, you know, every, every school, every instructor, every leader will approach this differently. And I think that as a culture, as a jujitsu, you know, scene, we, we should invest more in learning more about how to bring ourselves to a level where we are approachable to people that are new. And in my school, you know, I sort of teach on a cyclical curriculum. So we, we study a position and in the beginner's classes, we teach, you know, one or two movements in, let's say we're, we're teaching you how to do an arm bar. We might teach you one or two movements. And then the live portion of that class is, you know, either drilling that movement quite a bit, or if we start working into actual resistant scenarios, it's more of a positional drill so that everything is in context. So that a new student who started that day doesn't feel like what they learned was way over their head. They can actually just apply what they learned that day and then save, you know, the freeform rules for like an open mat, or maybe later on we divide the class out. And I think that that's really how we learn is taking our theory and applying it, right? And we don't do that well in jujitsu. I think a lot of times we cater to the strongest people in the room and we don't think about how to build everybody else up. So I have a lot of strong opinions on the fact that we're not helping the sport and we're not helping ourselves by neglecting the people that need it most, need our support the most. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. We've talked about this quite a bit, how the mistake that I think a lot of quote unquote instructors make is they try to cookie cutter what worked for them and apply it to their students, right? Or they they assume that all of their students are just like them and would want to learn and would benefit from learning the exact same way. And of course, you know, a lot of OG old school instructors, you know, they, <laughs> they might come from like a borderline fight background where this is what they benefit from. This is how they thrive is just these killer rooms where the intensity is just ratcheted up to 11. But that's going to turn off a lot of people and really it's going to shrink the growth of the art. And I would also argue that you're not going to achieve the best overall outcome for jujitsu if you just try to cookie cutter people into the same mold that worked for you, right? The goal of a good instructor should not be to create little mini clones of yourself. It should be to help people grow on their own path, which is something you talked about earlier, which is that at some point, as you get experienced enough, you start testing the boundaries and expanding your knowledge beyond what your instructor had guided you to. And you realize that maybe a lot of the things that had been put in front of you as rules or things that must be done Maybe that's actually not the case. Maybe that's the instructor's slant on things. But in the real world, maybe there's there's different ways to do it. Or maybe you can innovate a new way to do it. I mean, I remember, you know, I used to always go to my instructor and ask, hey, how do I do this? How do I do this? How do I do this? And then one day I got my black belt. And then I went to my instructor one day and said, hey, how do I do this? And he said to me, well, fuck, I don't know. You're the black belt. You figure it out. <laughs> and I realized at that point, well, okay, I, I get it now. Like my my obligation now at this level is that I need to be doing more than just sitting there and just like absorbing rote information from other people. I need to also be questioning things and growing the art. You know, it, it's very much like how if you want to get a PhD, 
It's not just about like learning and writing tests. Once you get to that level, the expectation is that you're actually discovering new knowledge and contributing back to the field and leaving your own unique fingerprints on on your field. And in jujitsu, I think it's very much the same, right? Once you get to a certain level, you need to be kind of going out on your own. So I really think that instructors trying to just prescribe the method that worked for them down onto all students, it's really going to shut down the growth of the art. It's going to kill the diversity of the art. I, I really wish that we did a better job of onboarding new people. Yeah, I think too that the other thing is we have to ask ourselves like all of the things that we want from the sport on an individual level can be right. It's just matching the context, right? So like it's not to say that a room of heavy competitors who just want to tear each other's heads off, that's not a bad thing if the purpose is aligned with the people in the room and the level is aligned with that as well. If you have hungry, confident, A-level competitors who need to push themselves and be aggressive and test themselves at the highest level against other people like themselves, that is in itself a great thing. But do that with those people. Don't pull in or expose somebody who's never seen jujitsu before to that madness because that person's going to go, whoa, I don't want to have anything to do with this. However, if you expose that person to, you know, some basic techniques and maybe show them some scenarios where they're applying it in a live scenario, that individual might say, hey, this is really intriguing. Like, I never thought I could do these sort of things. I didn't think I could toss somebody over my, my shoulder. I didn't think I could choke anyone. Now that I can do these things, I'm intrigued. I want to learn more. That person, fast forward five or six months or years later, might say, I want to go in that room with those beasts over there. You know, and I think it's just about us acknowledging like where people are at, where we're at and matching like what we want with what we're able to deliver and, and what, what our audience is ready for. We can't just walk around thinking that our way is the only way. Have you guys read or heard the lecture by David Foster Wallace, This is Water? No, but I'm going to write that down. It sounds interesting. I have not. So it's short. It's short. It was a commencement speech. It basically acknowledges frameworks. And so like the beginning of the story is that there's a fish swimming by two other fish and they're they're in the ocean or whatever. And the one fish says to the two fish, hey, guys, how's the water today? And the two fish look at each other and they go, what what water? And so the thing about that story is like most of us don't recognize like what we're doing. Like we're kind of unconsciously living our our days, unconsciously doing the things we do. But once we start building more awareness around the fact that like it's an act of what we're doing and we're making a choice to do these things and there's there's other choices that we didn't choose today, when we start to understand those different types of frameworks that exist around us, I think we do a much better job of accommodating people that are not like us. And I think that that's important when we're when we're teaching and we're trying to grow and we're trying to push our own edge is we have to acknowledge when something is for our own development versus the development of other people and when in life it's appropriate to go back and forth between those two places. Yeah, and I think for at least from my experience, you know, just because someone does not have a killer mindset on day 1, that doesn't mean they're going to be the same way by the time they get to black belt, right? Things change over time, especially if you guide people the right way. I remember when I was a blue belt, 
if I were fighting up several weight classes, you know, I, I'm not the biggest guy. And if I was fighting someone who was like 250 pounds, it just felt like this totally insurmountable problem to solve. And it was frankly demoralizing, right? I remember just thinking like, I cannot do this. And it takes a long time in jujitsu to get to the point where you can competently fight up that many weight classes. And it's always going to be hard, right? It's just, it's a lot of strength and mass and power to overcome. But by the time I got to brown belt, I kind of figured out the right tool and strategies for that. And, you know, now if I've got a role with a like 250 pound black belt, I don't even think about it. It doesn't bother me at all. In fact, frankly, it's the little guys who annoy me more because they're so freaking squirmy. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's important to understand that just because someone, you know, isn't like a, an absolute killer on day one, that doesn't mean they're still going to have that mindset as they grow. Mindsets can change over time. And I think one of the powerful things about jujitsu is not just that it teaches you these physical tools, but that it can also help you grow and develop a more resilient mindset as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And again, you know, it's just always getting to a place where we understand where we're being stretched, where we need to be stretched, and then having some support on the back end of that. And like, I think as long as we create the type of cultures or support systems where we can do these things, you know, and, and we can feel good about being pushed and we don't feel decimated and we don't feel dejected. Then we're talking about building more people up. And same thing, you know, if you're working on this from a personal standpoint, don't bite off more than you can chew. I mean, whether or not you can actually continue to chew it and get through it is not the point. It's just when you set particular types of goals for yourself, Keep them within reasonable state so that you understand like, okay, this is what I'm focused on and this is a reasonable step forward. You know, I think we tend to see more growth that way from managing what it is that we want to learn versus jumping in the deep end. Some people do that. You know, some people just say, give me the toughest person in the room. And, you know, maybe you will get better doing things that way, but it might be harder for you. It might take longer you might run more risk of injury. Like there's smarter ways that we could be doing things, not only for other people, but for ourselves. And I hope that the jujitsu community takes the time to really flush that out and sort of see what models we can apply so that we are learning things more efficiently, learning things more uh, safely, and also learning things so that we're constantly thinking about the growth of what it is that we're all involved in versus getting something personally out of it or just wanting to make money or, or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Emily, I, I want to be mindful of your time here. Thank you so much for this fantastic chat. Before we close the show here, any final advice, closing thoughts or recommendations for where to go next if people are interested in what you're talking about here? Yeah. I mean, gosh, if you're specifically interested in peak performance, it's a growing industry. I mean, I think 20 years ago, we didn't have as many books and resources in this space. So if you're looking for things to, to read, things to do, you can certainly check out Josh's website. He has a great resources and, and reading list on his website. So that's joshwaitskin.com. I'm about to launch my own website, which is uh, sort of a central place of all things that I do. I'll have some information there on consulting and seminars and writing and, and whatnot. And so I, I plan to start putting together a blog, just books that I'm reading and, and things that I'm interested in. And, you know, Matt, I, I wanted to say, because you were talking a lot about taking the time to stay engaged. Sometimes, you know, if it's not physically watching our own tape and thinking about our own athletic process, it's just diving deep on learning materials. And I've just been plowing through a bunch of books recently, 
both on performance and also on business and, and original thinking and whatnot. So I think that's also like a super powerful place to be, especially now where people's access to training and doing the things that they want to do might be a little bit hampered. It looks different depending on where you are. So there's tons of good stuff out there to, to indulge in. So I would highly recommend that, that you dig in. And if anyone has any questions about it, they can feel free to contact me either off my website or Instagram or Facebook. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think if you really want to get good at something, if you really want to excel, whether it's jujitsu or whatever, you're going to find a way to, you know, stay fresh. Even if you, even if you meet certain barriers like we are right now, and it's really up to you. And, you know, if you have a good coach, your coach can push you really well. But I mean, we have to kind of think outside the box and think of ways that we can still improve during this time even though things aren't really an ideal scenario. So that's what I'm sort of doing. I'm trying to think outside the box, but yeah. Awesome chat, Emily. Thanks a lot. Yeah. I really, I really appreciate it. And it's amazing to think like our connections and, and how much, you know, the sport has grown in the short time that we've all been doing it. And something that I'll, I'll leave everybody with too, that I've kind of been thinking about is what got you here might not necessarily be what you need to get you there. And sometimes when you're working towards something that's, that you can't quite explain, but you know it's sort of the right direction to go in, that you may invest yourself deeply in the process and you might have no idea where you're going to end up. And that's okay. You know, like it's not a resulting thing that we're doing. We're investing ourselves in being a better and a deeper person. So to feel lost in the moment or to not necessarily know what you're doing sometimes isn't the point. It's the quality of what it is that you're doing in that moment and how much does it bring you joy and how much does it invest in, in who you are and the rest, you know, life will play itself out. So I'll leave you guys with that. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much. And of course, if anyone out there wants to help us keep the lights on, the best way to support the show is our Patreon. You can go there at patreon.com slash BJJ mental models. Again, that's patreon.com slash BJJ mental models. It's the single best way to help us keep the lights on here at the show. We also definitely make it worth your while. We've got a bunch of premium content, mostly focusing on strategy there. You get early access to episodes. You get access to our Discord community so you can chat directly with us and other members of the team. And of course, you can also submit your rolling footage to us so we can provide visual feedback. So all benefits to the patrons. Please do consider supporting us there if you don't already. It really does make a difference and we appreciate every single one of you. Again, patreon.com slash models. Emily, thanks so much for the time. Fantastic chat. Really glad that we were able to get you on here to talk about what I think is just such a super important concept Hope to see you soon. Hope that soon this pandemic lifts and we can actually have you up here again for another seminar because the last one was great. So again, big thank you to you and best to you and yours for this new year. Thank you. Same to you guys. Thanks, Emily. Take care, guys. Bye.